Hey, welcome to the podcast of C3 Los Angeles. I'm Jake Sweetman, and together with my wife, Nicole, we lead this church. We're glad you're here, and we pray that wherever you're tuning in from, that you are encouraged and strengthened by this word. Here's today's message. Of our overflow series, Heading into Vision Builders, and uh, I'm very excited uh, about what God's given me to share. Uh, I'm going to read out of the book of Zechariah, uh, just one verse, chapter 1. In verse 17, uh, just because I'm going to make a point about it at the very end of the message. So it's a good verse, um, and I really, really like what it has to say to us and what the prophet Zechariah, how he prophesied to Israel and how that applies to the church today. Zechariah chapter 1 and verse 17, the prophet says this, Cry out again, thus says the Lord of hosts, my cities shall again overflow. Everybody say overflow. They shall again overflow with prosperity. There's the P word. Some Christians don't like the P word. Ooh, prosperity. He said the P word. But it's in the Bible, so I'm just reading the Bible. My city shall again overflow with prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. Now I'm going to read a passage from the New Testament in the book of Hebrews, chapter 11. Those of you who grew up in church, you know that Hebrews chapter 11 is called the Hall of... Ooh, the pastor's got it. Everybody else was a little bit uncomfortable. I always love that game when you're like, let, you know, the game fill in the blank at church. <laughs> the hall of Noah. I don't know. What, what? <laughs> it's the hall of faith because Hebrews 11 goes through uh, a great uh, list of people who lived by faith. We're going to read just a small section of it, verses 13 through to 16. These all great people of faith, what do they do? These all... Uh, they died in faith, <laughs> not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, which is Mesopotamia, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire, everybody say desire, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Amen? I want to begin today uh, with this notion that all biblical faith has its context in God's calling. Write that down. All biblical faith has its context in God's calling. If we thought of uh, probably one of the most notable examples of faith in the Bible, we would think of Abraham. And Abraham's vision for his life, uh, Abraham's vision for his legacy, wasn't something that he concocted on his own. It was a response. Everybody say response. It was a response to what God had showed him. God called Abraham, you probably know the story, to come uh, out from his tent and look up to the stars innumerable in the sky. God said, count them if you can, because he's revealing to Abraham the nation that he's going to bring forth uh, in Abraham's lineage, a nation that God would bring into a particular land where he would bless them and multiply them and then use them to bring blessing to all the nations of the earth. And the Bible says that Abraham responded to the vision that God showed him. How? With faith. That is, he believed what God was telling him and lived his life in accordance with that plan and promise. In other words, Abraham's faith had a context. 
He didn't just pack up all of his belongings and gather all of his family and say, hey, we're heading out from where we are and we're going into a place uh, to inhabit a land where we have no claim, where we have no ownership. He didn't do that because he felt like it. He did it because God called him and God's calling was the context for the faith of Abraham. In fact, if you look at all the people listed in Hebrews chapter 11, you will not find one example where they did not think of their story in the context of God's larger story. They did not think of their faith in the context of God's overall purpose because biblical faith always has a context and the context is the call of God that stems from the purpose of God. Now context is defined as a set of circumstances that form the setting for an event or an idea. Context is a set of circumstances that form the setting for something to take place. And I want to say to you today that the context that surrounds your life and the context that surrounds my life, the context that has surrounded the life of the church, the life of uh, believers for the last two millennium is the most incredible, most important, most exceptional set of circumstances that any individual or any group of people have ever found themselves in since before time began. I want to say that to you again because seven of you got it. That the context that surrounds your life and the context, the set of circumstances that have surrounded the church for the last 2,000 years is the most incredible set of circumstances that any group of people have ever found themselves in ever. Now the most thorough yet still brief text that we can look at to understand this context, this set of circumstances, is Matthew 28 verses 18 to 20. You probably know it as the Great Commission. Jesus came to his disciples and he said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That right there is an incredible contextual point to the life that you are living. That you are following and serving somebody who has all of the authority in heaven and on the earth. He doesn't just have all of the authority in the realm that is often thought to be his own, that is heaven. He also has all of the authority in the realm that is often wrongly con considered to be the realm of Satan or to be the realm of humanity. Jesus has all of the authority, not just in heaven, but also in the earth. That is the authority that God originally vested into Adam and Eve to be fruitful and to multiply and to exercise dominion over the earth. Authority that they gave up and gave over to the powers of darkness as they subjected themselves to the chains of sin. Jesus Christ has now won that authority back through his death, burial, and resurrection. What the devil had, Jesus now has, and he's never giving it back. He's never losing his authority. He has all of the authority in heaven heaven and on earth, which means there's no place you can go, no battle you might face, no task that you are given to undertake that Jesus does not claim ownership over that territory, ownership over that area. I do not want the expansiveness of this to get lost on you. What did Jesus want his early disciples to know? What does he want you to know today? That the context for all your living is that he has ultimate and complete authority. He is the one who has determined the direction 
and the conclusion of the human story. Not Satan, not your sin, not your sickness, not your lack, not your hardship, not your insecurity, certainly not Vladimir Putin. Therefore, we must live within the context that Jesus Christ possesses all of the authority everywhere. So how do we live in light of that? Jesus tells us in the next verse, go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end, end of the age. This is more context for your life right here. Jesus says, here's what I want you to do with my authority. And he has vested his authority into the church for three things. Number one, to disciple the nations out of darkness into his marvelous light. To baptize them in water into the family of God. And then to mobilize those people who have been brought out of darkness into light and into God's family into the same mission to reach the nations that God is reaching. And then Jesus says, and I'm going to be with you every single step of the way so that you can witness my divine power work through all of your human weakness. We say it like this here at C3LA, that our purpose is to make and multiply disciples of Jesus Christ who walk in the truth of the Scriptures by the power of the Spirit for the sake of God's love. It's just how we express what Jesus already expressed 2,000 years ago called the Great Commission, that He has vested His authority in the church to make disciples everywhere, and He has claim over people everywhere because He has all of the authority... And any other context for living that can come for your life comes only from somebody who had no authority to set the context in the first place. Because if Jesus has all of it, then that means they have none of it. This context is important because it's what grounds your faith in an actual real story, in God's story. And without being grounded in God's story, what looks like a life, a life of faith sometimes is actually more just like passion or excitement. And there's nothing wrong with passion and excitement. But I can be excited about something without it being in its proper context. In the same way that two people can be excited about sex outside the biblical context of marriage... So you can be excited about your life. Ooh, it got real awkwardly quiet. Mm. Have you guys not heard that word before? We got potty talk. We got birds and the bees today. So people can be excited about sex outside the biblical context of marriage. And in the same way, you can be excited about your life outside the context of God's story. You see, a lot of times Christians, they want to have something in life that they are passionate about. So they go, looking, they go looking for and pursuing and building whatever they think their thing is going to be without thinking about how it ties into God's calling and purpose. Therefore, what they do never has the proper context. And so one of two things happens. A, it burns up before it becomes anything. B, it becomes something and burns them up in the process. Because it lacked the proper guardrails to define and inform what it is that they were doing and why they were doing it. Context is the key to this all too common scenario in the life of a believer. You see, the outcome of putting your faith in context is that your faith goes from just a set of beliefs that grants you access into heaven and becomes something that actually informs the way that you live now. 
it's connected inseparably to your actions. And this is good because just like Abraham who placed his faith in God, his response to God's purpose and calling, how that affected uh, the way that he lived and the steps that he took. So also when you put your faith in context, it is supposed to inform the way that you live. The purpose and the calling that God has revealed in his son and that God has revealed in the scriptures is supposed to actually have bearing on your actions. And by that, I don't just mean living a life where you become a professional swatter away of every single temptation to sin as though the Christian life were nothing more than a glorified game of whack-a-mole. Friends, if that's what you think Christian living is, just doing your best to swatting away every single sin. If that's what you think the height of your Christian experience is, you have been sold something so much short of where God has called you to live. I'm inviting you into a whole nother game entirely. A ground-taking, life-changing, city-impacting call that God has upon His church that we are supposed to walk in because He has all of the authority. You say, oh, when I get my life straightened out, then I'll join in on God's purpose. Friend, your life only gets straightened out as you join in on God's purpose. It's called sanctification. You say, oh, well, when I, you know, when I get my life together, then I'll join in on God's story. Your own life only gets worked together as you work together with God. It's called His grace working through your weakness, and it's the only true and proper way to live. And to think otherwise about these things is to rip your life out of context and expect it to make sense and for it to amount to its intended outcomes. You've heard of people taking scripture out of context. That's a secondary worry to me. I'm concerned about Christians taking their life out of context. Some of us are ripping our Christian life out of context and we are so surprised when our fellow practitioners of the faith are looking at us funny like they don't get us, like we just quoted, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me about my Peloton workout. <laughs> I look at Christians funny as though they just did that. Like, you don't understand, what, why are we even here? Just wonder-lusting, doing my thing. And I don't know why I have a lisp, but I do. And your life is out of context. And I'm looking at your Instagram feed funny because like, I don't get you. Because this is not what Jesus died for. For you just to float around on the wind and just do you, boo. No, no, no. Jesus died on the cross so that you could live in the light of the authority that he now possesses for the sake of his church. He said, when we misunderstand the story, God's story, what happens is we get our own story wrong. When we are ignoring the context, we forgo the contribution that you and I are supposed to make to that context in the first place. And here's the thing about story, about meta-narrative. The story in which you live, and this is just an aside, but I think it's very helpful. The story in which you live is super fundamental to the strength of your identity. And your identity is found, actually, in the overarching story that you understand understand yourself to be living in. And I think a lot of times the reason Christians wrestle so much with unstableness in their thinking and insecurity and um, difficulty with their thoughts a lot of times is because they just don't know the story in which they're supposed to be living. Their thoughts don't have anywhere larger to land. And so you've got to know your story if you're going to be a secure person. 
Otherwise, you'll perpetually be living in the same unknowns that the world is living in. But you're not supposed to live that way. That's why Paul can say ridiculous things like, we grieve, but not like those with no hope. Why did he say that? Because he understood the meta-narrative. He understood the story. And he's calling people back into the story. I'm calling you back into the story so that you understand not just how you should live, but why you should live. It's common among biblical scholars to refer to the age between the first and second coming of Jesus Christ as the already and the not yet, or the now and the not yet of the kingdom of God. This is in reference to the biblical teaching that at Christ's first coming, the kingdom was inaugurated in the earth, and at his second coming, the kingdom will arrive in its fullness, and all evil will be destroyed forever. You see, when Christ is incarnated, when he came from eternity and inserted himself into the human story. He brought the kingdom with him because he himself is the king. And the kingdom is wherever the king is. And by his death and by his resurrection and by the sending of his Holy Spirit upon the church, the kingdom is now reigning in our hearts because this is where he is. The Holy Spirit has taken up inhabitation inside of you. And when Christ returns, this will amount to the full arrival of his kingdom in the earth. It will bring about such transformation that even our frail and mortal bodies will be gloriously transformed into a resurrection body with no frailty and no mortality whatsoever. So this, this tension of the now and the not yet is what it means for you and I to be uh, experiencing God's kingdom here in this present reality. Another way you could say it is that the effects of Jesus' death and resurrection have not been fully applied to the furthest extent that they will be just yet. For example, Satan is still allowed certain amounts of activity in the earth. Sickness still attacks our bodies. Our spirits inside of us still war uh, in the desires of the desire of the spirit in us. That's a war that's happening. Literal war breaks out in the world. We have not seen the fullness of God's kingdom come yet, but God is allowing all of this to happen in his sovereignty as he winds up this story into its beautiful and climactic conclusion. And it's not hard for you and I to see examples of where the kingdom has not yet fully arrived, but it's also not hard to see examples of where the kingdom manifests itself and breaks out in our lives and circumstances, in demonstrations of power or just small, beautiful, intimate experiences of the mercy and the grace of God. These are all examples of Jesus manifesting his kingdom in the here and now. And they're the result of the authority that he now possesses. And the way that God does that is in partnership with the church. You see, just because God has a story that's already been written does not mean that the role of the church is passive. No, no, no. The role of the church is active. You and I are called to play a part in the story that God has already determined its end, but he's using you and I throughout the process. Uh, the theologian who popularized um, that statement already and not yet was a Swiss man named Oscar Coleman. And he used a, uh, an analogy to help people understand the days in which we live Pointing back to World War II, he talked about uh, D-Day, which is when uh, the Allied powers, 150,000 plus troops from U.S., Canada, um, uh, Great Britain, arrived on the shores of Normandy, France. And there was a lot of loss of life, a lot of bloodshed on both sides of that battle as they faced off with the German armies uh, on, on both sides. But nine months later, Germany had surrendered and World War II was over.
Now, historians look back at D-Day when they landed on the shores and V-Day when the war was over, and they say D-Day was the turning point in the war where they knew that this war was going to go in their favor and Nazi Germany was going to lose. But even though they knew the war was won, it was nine months before the victory was actually sealed and Germany had surrendered. And what uh, Coleman, was, the point that he was making is that you and I as believers are living in that nine-month period between D-Day and between V-Day. That's the point that he's correlating to our experience. You see, Colossians 2.15 says that God disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. That is Jesus on the cross. In other words, he has overcome the powers of darkness. He has opened the prison doors for people to go free. That's D-Day. And now that the powers are defeated and humiliated, the day is coming when they will one day be destroyed. In 1 Corinthians 15.25 and 26, for he must reign until he has put all all his enemies under his feet, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. That's V-Day. That's the day that is coming. And you and I are living in between those two days. And the victory is guaranteed, but you and I are still finishing up the fight. And the way that we fight is by announcing the good news of Jesus' victory to the whole world and teaching them to follow him out of death and into resurrection. That, by the way, is called discipleship. That's the mission of the church, to teach people to follow Jesus out of death, out of decay, out of destruction, and into the life of the kingdom, into relationship with the Holy Spirit. This nine-month period, this is the context for all of your faith and all of your living. It is the larger story and the larger purpose to which you and I are meant to be connected. So I just want to start to land this message today by asking you a question. When you think about walking with God, do you think about something primarily safe? Do you think about something that is primarily comfortable? Is it centered on your own personal desires? Have you thought about your relationship with the Lord as having arrived at some kind of finish line and now you just do your thing until your time on this earth is up? Friend, you weren't just saved from something. You were saved for something. To do something during that nine-month period. You see, the armies of hell have been defeated, but they are not going to meet their end without throwing some tantrums aimed at keeping people from hearing and believing the gospel. Revelation 12, 12 says exactly in relation to this, Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them, symbolic of the people of God. But woe to you, O earth and sea, symbolic of those who reject Christ. For the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. So he knows that his remaining time is short. So he acts out how? In vengeful wrath to try and undermine the plan of God, even though he ultimately will fail. And guess what means, guess what method God has chosen to use to triumph over Satan in all of his wrathful activity? He has chosen the church living by faith in Christ. If you look at the preceding verse in uh, Revelation 12, 11, it says, they, they is us, the church, they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Now I want you to pay really special attention to how that verse says that we conquer the activity of Satan. It is by faith in Christ and loving not our own lives even unto death. Friend, how do you love your own life even, uh, not even unto death? The answer is that you understand how your life was meant to be lived in the first place. You understand the context in which you were meant to live in the first place. 
One author says this, does your story enable you to look death in the face? <clears throat> and if it doesn't, then we're living in the wrong story. Our life is out of context. Does your story, let's, let's make it uh, more applicable for Christians living in 21st century West. Does your story allow you to live in such a way that uh, your money doesn't own you? Does your story allow you to live in such a way that you don't look to external things to find your security, you find your security in Christ? Does your story allow you to live in such a way that your principal concern is not your own comfort, but the furthering of God's kingdom in the earth? Because if your story does not enable you to live in that kind of way, then you're living according to the wrong story. You are a Christian living out of context. And it's time to come back into context. You see, the primary word that we ought to think about when we think about living for Jesus is not safety, it's adventure. I'm a big fan of uh, the Hobbit trilogies and the Lord of the Rings trilogies. Any nerds up in here? Yeah, you love them? Yeah, love them, right? I love those trilogies. I recently watched them with my, uh, my son. He's about to be eight. And I uh, watched them when, um, you know, earlier, I forgot how violent they were. And <laughs> we're watching the first one, and there's a scene where, like, an orc gets his head cut off really quick. And I'm thinking to myself, oh, maybe he didn't see it. He turns to me and goes, they just cut that guy's head off? <laughs> and I, I, I was like, oh, no, definitely not. And then three seconds later, another orc gets his head cut. He's like, they did, they cut his head off. I love those trilogies of movies. I love the adventure that is in them. And if you love them too, if you've watched them, I can promise you this, not one time while you're watching those movies do you think to yourself when they get to a new challenge, gee, I wish they'd just turn back. I wish they'd just go home. I wish they'd just go back to comfort. I wish they'd go back to safety. No, no, no. What I think is I want them to hunt down the dragon and slay it. I want them to crush every orc. I want them to defeat the wicked wizard. I want them to take the ring of power and destroy it in the fires of Mordor. That's what I want them to do. And the reason we desire that when we watch those stories is because you and I are actually made for adventure. We're actually made for that kind of life, not a life of comfort and safety. Terry Virgo in his book, God's Lavish Grace, says this about the grace of God, that grace should never lead to passivity, but to outrageous adventure, a lifestyle that baffles those who play safe. It threatens the status quo, not only of tentative religion, but also of cynical unbelief. And it sets the church free to risk all for the praise of him who freely gave all for us. What I love about this is he rightly points out that God's grace actually sets you free to live the way that you actually want to live. Before Christ, we were bound by worry and fear and anxiety. We were taught and told to cling to our lives and cling to our opportunities and cling to our stuff because we had a scarcity mentality. Who knows when I'm going to get what I feel like I need to have. And God's grace comes barraging into your life, not so that you can just do a Christian version of that and call it waiting to go to heaven. No. God's grace comes into your life to set you free to live the way that you actually deeply want to live on the inside. So the invitation is for you to bring your life back into context. The band can come. I got two minutes left. We've got to land this meeting. None of this negates the enjoyment of God's provision and blessing in your life. None of this pulls you out of a life of peace. What all of this does is it actually provides and informs your blessing. 
It provides and informs your joy. It provides and informs your peace. God wants to bless you in your life, not so that you can just go and do your own thing, but so that you can understand the context in which you live, live and know what to do with what he's given you. It's all context for the way you and I are supposed to live for the Lord. This is why we do vision builders. It's not some arbitrary opportunity to give. It's not some arbitrary moment to sacrifice. It's a collective decision to bring our lives into context, to bring our finances into context. This is the story, and I want my money to be found in the story. Not to be found just doing its own thing over here. I want my whole life to be found in the context of God's story. And settling for anything less as a, as a Christian is settling for a life that you actually weren't intended to live. This is the call of God for the people of God, is that they would understand the story of God and live out that story. That's an alarm going off right now to tell you it's time to come back into context. Just thinking on my feet. So what does it have to do with Zechariah? Uh, Zechariah was a prophet who lived during Second Temple Judaism, or leading into it, that Israel had been exiled into Babylon for their disobedience to the Lord. And after 70 years of exile, they come back into Jerusalem, they come back into Israel. And some time goes by, people are getting settled, and they still haven't begun to rebuild the temple yet. Zechariah starts prophesying 18 years after Israel had come back into Jerusalem from Babylon. And one of the things that you find in that book, obviously he's got this prophetic vision. We're, we're going to overflow again. We're going to overflow again. I, just, I believe that about our church. We're going to overflow again. Those chairs are going to be full again. This church is going to be full again. This church is going to multiply. This church is going to grow. We're not going to be just community. We're going to be regional. We are going to overflow again. There is not a single thing that the devil took from this church during COVID that God does not intend on bringing back and then some, multiplying this church. But here's one of the things that Zechariah says. In, uh, it's in chapter 2. It's kind of an interesting thing because he's in Jerusalem prophesying to the people there, but he says, Up, you, are, you who are in Babylon and come back to Zion. Because what had happened is during that 70 year period in Babylon, they actually had it like kind of good. And when Israel started coming out of Babylon back to Jerusalem, there were some who stayed behind in Babylon because their lives were pretty comfortable and their lives were pretty safe. Maybe they were acquiring wealth. And Zechariah says to them, come out of Babylon. Why? Because God's got a purpose in Jerusalem. God's rebuilding the city. God's rebuilding the temple. And you, what is it? It's an invitation to bring their life back into context because they are living out of context of God's story. And Zechariah says, come back. Some of us over the last two years, it's been easy to put our life out of context. Why? Because it kind of felt like the context fell apart for a moment. But can I just tell you that God is sovereign and God is providential. And context did not fall apart for him. And so it's time for you and I to come out of spiritual Babylon. Interestingly enough, the Apostle John in the book of Revelation includes the exact same invitation to the church. 
come out of Babylon, come out of spiritual Babylon. Plant yourself in the house of God. Plant yourself in God's story, in God's context. Live for Him. See what God will do through you and see what God will bless you with in your life as you continue to seek after His glory and His purposes in the earth. Church, I thank you so much for your faithfulness and your grace to journey with us and to be faithful and to be faith-filled. And in the name of Jesus right now, I just declare God's blessing over your world. I thank you, Lord, that you love this church, that you love these people, and that your story is a story that we can count on, that your story is the one in which we can plant ourselves in to experience all of your purposes, Lord God. And even though your purpose costs us, and even though your purpose brings us through trial, Lord God, yet will we trust in you because we know that you are infinitely greater than anything that the world could ever offer us. We love you. We bless your holy name. In the name of Jesus. You've been listening to the C3 Los Angeles podcast. If you found today's message helpful, we encourage you to share it with a friend and consider rating it. If you'd like more information about our church or details on how to get connected to a neighborhood group, head to c3losangeles.com. We love you. Thanks for tuning in with us.